We are continuing in our sermon series uh, today called Why Church? If you've not been here uh, for the first couple sermons in this series, we're talking about why the church we believe is still relevant and needed uh, in the 21st century as the culture around us continues to change, continues to shift, and the church as we've known it, um, some would say is dying, I would say is changing, or in the first week I even said I think it's returning to the ancient practices of the early church and the time that I think it was probably its healthiest. So um, this series hopefully is, is an exciting one um, because I think there's a lot of doomsday talk around the church in America, especially right now. And we want to, at Lover's Lane, talk about the, the possibilities, the opportunities, and the hopes that we have for the future of the church and why we believe the church really is a force for good and a necessary one in our culture, even as it changes. So um, this week, we're going to talk about Christian relationships and the way in which uh, the church can be a witness through the relationships that we as Christians have. Because uh, I think we talk a lot about evangelism in the church. Uh, Lover's Lane is an evangelistic kind of church. Uh, we value evangelism. We have a baptismal pool, which most Methodist churches don't have, right? That says something about our culture here. We value the power of witness and getting the word out about Jesus. I think what we'll find is that as the century continues and as all of us age further and we see culture shift even more, um, what it means to evangelize may begin to shift. What it means to be a witness may begin to shift as well. It may not be the old school style of standing on a street corner and proclaiming the name of Jesus. It may be simply the way that we interact with people around us people who know that we are Christians and therefore we kind of represent Christ in their eyes, the way that we treat our friends and our coworkers and our family, the way that we talk and conduct ourselves, those things may be more evangelistic than ever moving forward for the church. Y'all, y'all follow me so far a little bit? So we're going to talk about that today, how our relationships, the way that we treat each other and other people um, are a witness in the church and, and why that could be a very good thing for us moving forward. So to help us in our conversation today, we're going to look at a scripture from the, Paul's letter to the church in Colossae, Colossians uh, chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. And also another part of our team that's been working feverishly is our tech crew. Jake, are we good to go on, on, on scriptures on the screens? Can I get a thumbs up or a thumbs down? Thumbs up. Can we give Jake Gilliland a round of applause? Thank you, Jake. He had to manually enter those in, and as he said, he was not the most proficient typographer in school, and so uh, we, are, we are glad for, uh, for your efforts this morning. So uh, we're going to look at Colossians beginning in chapter 3, verse 7. So uh, just a quick background on this letter uh, for those who know nothing about it. Uh, Paul is writing this letter, or it's said to be Paul. We won't get into the questions about whether it was Paul or someone writing in his name. What, that's not really that important. doesn't really matter for today. But he's writing this letter from prison, uh, and as he, as he wrote many of his letters, he's writing this letter to a church that he actually had never been to before, but he's hearing about uh, through some of his other leaders. He was good at delegation. Um, and he's writing this letter specifically because he has heard that, that the church in Colossae is struggling um, with understanding what it means to live as Christians 
in a culture where there's a lot of other people vying for their attention. They live in a culture that's largely pagan, so there's a lot of other uh, gods that are being worshipped, and some of the Christians in Colossae are wondering if Jesus can just be another one of those gods. Can we continue to worship you know, Aphrodite and Hermes and others and also worship Jesus? Uh, Paul's going to say very clearly, no. Uh, there's also people in Colossae who come from a Jewish background and are wondering, um, does, does worshiping Jesus mean following all of the rules of the Old Testament, including circumcision and Sabbath and dietary restrictions? And Paul is going to say no. And that's, he talks about all that stuff in the first couple chapters. And when we get to chapter 3 in Colossians, which is where we are, Paul's now making a case for what it looks like to live as Jesus People, as a resurrected people who follow the Messiah who is Christ. So it's, he's saying it's not following these other pagan gods. It's not living by the Old Testament rules. Here's what it does look like. This is what it means to be a resurrected people. And that's what we're going to look at because Paul, his image of a resurrected people is all about relationships. It's all about how we treat one another. And so we're going to pick up in verse 8 actually, is what I've got printed here. So, uh, Oh, yeah, so we can start in, in verse 7. So it says this, You used to live this way when you're alive to these things, but now set aside these things, such as rage, malice, slander, and obscene language. Don't lie to each other. And we're going to stop right there. Reagan, you got something to say. I do. <clears throat> so anger, rage, malice, slander, and obscene language are fun things. They are. Let's just be real. They're super fun. Okay. <laughs> They're fun. Um, and so I think when I read that, um, sometimes when people read that, especially new people, they're like, great. So now we all have to be like Ned Flanders from The Simpsons. And just I did be, Leo, neighbor. Just yeah. be so friendly and so happy and never say anything, cross, like all that. And, and so that can kind of turn off people because there's – there's a lot of scripture, a lot of things, which even in this one about putting off your old self and putting on your new self and all of that. And yes, that is true, um, but we're still, there's still parts of us that are going to be there that are kind of hard to get rid of. Like maybe you have, you know, anger or whatever, or maybe you really like to use colorful language. During Cowboys games. Yeah. <clears throat> so, but when I read that, I, I think... There's this element of knowing when you are at a kind of a tipping point. And so what I mean by that is that it doesn't mean, oh, you can never be ang angry. You can never, um, you know, blow off steam or you can never maybe have a few things coming out of your mouth. But it's how you use it, when you use it. And we all know what it's like um, when you're kind of in an argument or maybe you're thinking things and... You're like, I need to stop before I get really, really mean, before I really get into that territory of just being an awful person. I think we all kind of know what that's like. Maybe that's just, um, and sometimes you know how to stop. You know how to put a period. Like when you're in an argument with your spouse, um, you know that you're like, I should stop right now or it's going to be really bad. Um, I don't know if anyone does any Enneagram work. Does anyone do Enneagram? Anyone? No one, not a single person. Super. Oh, Kristen, great. So one person, <laughs> you, Kristen and I are going to have a conversation now. <laughs> um, no, but there, it is a, it's a great kind of personality thing, but I know for me, um, so I'm a number two, which again, means nothing to you. But so you, 
one thing that I possess is that I really care about people. I really love them. I'm very intentional. I'm kind of the helper. But the, the ugly part of that is because I'm so observant, because I know things, is that I know exactly what to say to you that will bring you to your knees, okay? Like I, those insecurities you have about you, I can name them, all right? Like it's, it's super awful, fun. Yeah. Super fun. Um, but I think about that in the way that we, we care for each other is that we, sorry, there was a fuzzy there. You're doing uh, a good job batting it out of the way. Yeah. That I know that I never need to use that knowledge or those weapons. And so I think as Christians, when you're in relationships, you need to be real. You need to be honest. It doesn't mean you never have conflict. You never like pick up things, but you know when to stop because you're going to start looking there needs to be a difference of the way that we conduct when we're in conflict, when we're angry, yeah. than other people. Does that make sense? Um, and then also, I think the whole, the line of don't lie to each other. I do wish there was a little bit more transparency. I wish we could talk to one another and not only tell what we're really going through, how we're feeling, um, but get in a place where we're comfortable saying things to one another that may make each other uncomfortable, but we're doing this loving, graceful way. And so one thing, and I think when it comes to our communication with one another, being really Jesus-centered, being really showing that you're different is um, the way you communicate, the way that you um, think. There's just more of a filter. There's more of a stop. You know what to, to kind of get rid of or stop doing. Do you have any other thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think sometimes for me it's helpful to think about what are the parts of my communication that I have to lay on the altar, right? We're going to have communion here in a little bit. Um, and part of that communion liturgy is, you know, offering up to God our imperfections. And so, you know, for me it's uh, what are those parts of the way that I communicate um, with Reagan, with friends, with coworkers, with my family, that... If I was being honest, I, I could allow Christ to have more control over that if I wanted to. I, I could allow Christ to work on me a little bit more if I wanted to, even though it's really fun to be angry and to cuss. So fun. Um, it's, Gosh, so fun. it's so fun. Super fun. Man. Um, but I know that Christ has a better vision for me in the way that I conduct myself. So we'll keep reading. It says in verse nine, it says, don't lie to each other. And then he goes into this uh, couple of verses where he says, take off the old human nature with its practices and put on the new nature, which is renewed in knowledge by conforming to the image of the one who created it. In this image, there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all things and all people. And if you spent time, and I want to stop here for a second. If you... I think it's pronounced Slytherin. Slytherin, no. <laughs> yeah. Just so you know. <laughs> Scythian. So um, you've heard this, this kind of litany uh, before, right? This, this appears in other places in Paul's writings. Uh, but here he's talking about it in the context of, of no longer defining ourselves by who we were before we came to know Christ, but now defining ourselves by who we are after we've come to know Christ. And where that came into most direct uh, sort of uh, rubber meets the road nature with Paul was um, understanding how these divisions that were felt in the Roman Empire were now beginning to dissolve because the Roman Empire really liked 
hierarchy. Somebody was in charge of somebody. Men were over women. The Romans were over the people they'd conquered. Um, and so, you know, obviously masters were over their slaves. And, and, and one thing that Paul tries to communicate in so many of his writings is that Christ is a great equalizer. You know, if Christ is now our center pole and everyone is defined off of that, then all of us are in need of moving. All of us are submitting ourselves under Christ's leadership. There's not these same kind of divisions. Um, I think this is a really, really potent scripture for us as a 21st century church. Um, because, so what's interesting is that the way that the church meets culture throughout history um, and, and the way that the church interacts with kind of the, the prevailing philosophy of the day. Um, let me explain what I mean by that. So um, a couple hundred years ago, we went through this period of time called the Enlightenment, right? And this was a time in philosophy where all of a sudden, you know, rationalism was really important and scientific discovery was really important and testing things and knowing what was true or false was really important. And we were able to really begin to understand the world around us in a way that we couldn't ever before. And the Enlightenment was a really, really cool, powerful moment in history. And the church went in that direction as well. And what was really neat about that is all of a sudden the church became really interested in, in loving God with our minds and, and spending time on, you know, historically critiquing the scriptures and understanding the context and understanding more than just the words on the page. And that was great. But like many things, the church can go a little bit too far, right? Or culture can go a little bit too far. And, and unfortunately, sometimes the church can follow that in an unhealthy way. In the Enlightenment, it looked like this, that unless we can prove it, Unless it can be reasoned, then we have no use for it, right? Which is going to be problematic when you're talking about faith. And you're talking about a faith that has mysteries of faith. You know, at the communion table, we talk about the, the mystery of faith is Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Now reason that for me, right? And so all of a sudden, we began having people question basic, creedal, doctrinal kind of statements like, Christ was resurrected in the flesh. Well, that doesn't make sense. You're right. It doesn't. So I think sometimes the, the, the church can meet those cultural philosophical movements in a great way. I love using my mind to follow after God. But sometimes we go a little bit too far, like not everything can be proven. What does that mean for us today? Because we're not in an enlightenment modern era anymore. Philosophers in the room, you know that we're in what's called a postmodern era. Isn't that fun? What that means is that no longer are we as concerned about the objective truth, we now understand that there is relative truth in the world, and everyone's individual experiences uh, can be true to them, right? And, you, and when you understand this, you see it everywhere in the way that we, our media conducts the news, in the way that we talk and argue about subjects in the, in the public sphere. We don't live in a world that, that assumes there's a universal truth. We live in a world that assumes that everybody is a little bit correct, right? Everybody's right for them. And in some ways, that's a good thing because then it uplifts the personal experience. And out of postmodernism, we get things like civil rights, right? Because now the experience of the oppressed is important, right? The experience of people who are not in charge is important. And there can be things that are true born out of your personal experience. Where it can get lost in the weeds, especially in terms of faith, is that we can't lose sight of the fact that there is an objective universal truth in this universe, even if none of us have a full grasp of it. And that universal truth is Christ Jesus. That universal truth is God. 
And so if, if we're going to be a church in the 21st century, I think it's great for us to move in this way that says, you know, these divisions between people, are, we need to break those down. And if, whether you're Greek or Jew, whether you're Scythian or barbarian or circumcised or uncircumcised, your, your experience, your life matters. And we want to hear about that. Where we want to make sure we stop short is when we begin to say, and none of us really know what's true anyways, because all of us are a little bit right in the end, right? And, and that's not completely true. Because even though all of us have equal access to the universal truth of God and none of us understand God fully, there is still something worth pursuing. You with me? There is still a center pole of the cross that binds us together. You with me? Yeah? So um, I, I think we need to understand that the, that the church can say, yes, I see Jesus in every experience. Like Paul says, Christ is all things in all people. I can see Christ in every single personal experience, but I'm not going to define Christ off of any individual personal experience. Yeah? All right. I've, I've beaten that philosophy. We're going to move on from philosophy. Sorry, that, that was fun for me. I don't know about fun for you. That was fun well, for me. That was fun for someone. I got to talk about postmodernism on a Sunday morning. This is fantastic. I'm glad they got an extra hour of sleep. <laughs> Maybe that helped them. Woo! Um, Keep going, Reagan. Get us yeah, back on track. Sure. I will just say, I, I love that in this image, there's neither Greek nor Jew, that whole thing. That's just a good reminder um, <clears throat> that here in the, that why the church is important, that we do need to be a place where everyone is equal and every story matters um, because there's a lot out in the world that people are being oppressed. There's all this. I mean, there's just... We're not loving each other. We're not caring for each other. And I think the church really, I wish we could recapture that. No, you need to come here because you matter and you're important. And I'm not better than you. And you're not better than me. And we're all in this together. I, when I read that, that's what jumps out to me is that there's no, well, you're this and you're that and this. No, we're, we're all the same. And no one is better than another person. Okay, moving on. Verse 12, therefore, as God's choice holy and loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. So obviously there's a lot of scripture that talks about, and rightly so, that God uh, first loved us and that God first chose us, which is true, absolutely. But I think sometimes we don't take a lot of the responsibility. See, what I love about God is that um, we, we do get to choose. God is not forced upon us. We don't have to believe in God. We don't have to believe in Christ. We don't have to do that. But at some point in your life, um, hopefully, uh, you do make that active choice to choose, no, I want, I want God for me. I want to follow Christ. Like, I want to do that. And when I read that, and when I think about how I act and how I speak and, and everything that I do, is that, you know, I chose I chose, I said to God, no, I want to follow you, and I want to look different. And so I have a responsibility that I am going to be compassionate, and I am going to be kind, and I'm going to be humble, and I'm going to be gentle, and I'm going to be patient. Um, I think sometimes we just get so lazy in that. Um, and for me, this scripture just reminds me, like, okay, Reagan, you chose this, or like, you chose to be, even though I was called, I didn't have to say yes. You know, I chose to be a pastor. I chose to do all these things. And so how am I going to prove it, kind of, not to, to go off what Scott said, um, 
that, okay, now we have a responsibility. If you're going to say that you're a Christian, if you're going to say this, then, then do it. <laughs> Stop being lazy. And so I think we need to really live into that calling that Christ <clears throat> tells us when we read the scripture and it talks about forgiving and doing all these things. We need to do it. We need to do it. We need to stop choosing like everyone else and saying, well, I get a pass now, or that was really hard, or this is whatever. Like, do it. It is hard. It is hard to, to live into how Christ lived, but we got to start choosing it more because people are choosing it less and less and less. And so that's what I have to say about that. Well, that's good. I think building off of that in verse 13, Paul says this, be tolerant with each other. And if someone has a complaint against anyone, forgive each other. As the Lord forgave you, so also forgive each other. And so again, it goes back to this initial love of God, right? This, that none of us are where we are today without the love and grace of God. And that God loves us precisely where we are. I talked about that a couple weeks ago, or last week rather. Um, that there's nothing that can separate us from that love of God, even when we make the wrong choice again and again and again. God still loves and forgives and extends grace for us, and yet Paul says that should be all the more reason why you should be encouraged to go out into the world and do the same thing, right? Um, that you should go into your relationships the way that God steps into relationship with you. And so when we come to God and humbly confess, God doesn't rain judgment down upon us. God extends mercy and forgiveness. Um, it made me think of, uh, you know, we, we live in a world today where it seems like we've got sort of this double-down mentality where nobody wants to admit they're wrong about anything ever. What? I know, I know. I haven't seen that. <laughs> nobody wants to admit they're wrong about anything ever. And, and I'm not talking about, don't, don't read the, into this into some sort of public sphere kind of thing that I'm trying to say. I'm talking about just in interpersonal relationships. I've felt this in my own soul. I've felt th these words come out of my own mouth where it, it seems like there's just sort of this, this movement as a culture where we don't like to admit when we're wrong or we don't like to admit when we made a mistake or when we harmed somebody. And I wonder what it would look like if the church, if, and by the church, I mean the people of the church, you realize that you are the church, I am the church, we are the church together, right? Um, if the church were to get really comfortable saying the words, I was wrong, I am sorry, what kind of an evangelistic witness would that be to a world that only knows doubling down? If we were to get really good at seeking forgiveness, could that bring people to Christ? Because it seems like Paul is saying this forgiveness thing is kind of central to the Christian experience. And if we were able to model that out in the world, do you think some people might say, you know, you are always so you seem to be able to say that you're sorry, you screwed up, and no one else is able to say that. Why is that possible? And oh my gosh, what if you were able to introduce them to Jesus in that moment? And you say, I'll be honest, I don't like saying I'm sorry. Like, I'll be honest, my family, we don't say I'm sorry very well. I come from a long line of not saying sorry. We are very sure of ourselves. Yep. I come from a long line of know-it-alls. We're going to go to Thanksgiving together. We're going to play games and fight and hate each other at about 9.30 p.m. No, I love my family. We're awesome, but we are so sure of ourselves, it's hard to say I'm sorry. I don't like saying I'm sorry. But I say I'm sorry because I know that, that God has forgiven me. And I say I'm sorry because I know that Christ expects that from me. And I don't always do it right. <laughs> Trust me, if you know me, I don't always do that right. But I know that is the expectation. That is the hope 
that Christ has set for me. And I know that, that saying I was wrong, I am sorry, that might be a more powerful witness than we realize in the world around us. Reagan. Uh, I want to add to that. I think one thing that I've learned is, um, oh, here's one thing. I'm really bad at sending thank you notes on time. Does everyone have that problem? And then so much time goes on, you're like, well, I can't send it now, so I just won't. I should send it now. Now I can't. It's way too late. Um, and I think there's something about forget, like saying sorry. Sometimes there's been moments where I'm like, well, I can't. Now I realize that was a like long time ago, and I was wrong, or I was really rude. What if you actually went to that person and said you were sorry, and and explain it? You know, I've been learning, I've been growing, or I've been really convicted by the Holy Spirit. Um, that how I acted in the past or what I did five years ago, whatever it is, you know, I'm really sorry about that. How big would that be? Especially, I mean, that'd be even bigger than if something just happened yesterday and I yeah. said sorry. Yeah. Um, I think people would be really shocked and really amazed and really like, huh, that's interesting that this person maybe is still thinking about it or maybe they feel like they owe something that they want to say sorry. I, I think that speaks volumes about the way that the Spirit can work in us. Um, and so my big advice is it's never too late to go to someone and say, hey, I'm really sorry. So yeah, yeah it's never, ever, ever too late to do that. So um, in closing, because we're getting to that time where it's time for communion soon, um, there's these last couple of verses that I do want to touch on, though. Um, Beginning in verse 14, it says, And over all these things put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. He says this word unity, and he goes on to say, The peace of Christ must control your hearts, a peace into which you were called in one body, and be thankful people. So he talks about this concept of unity and this peace within the body. Um, and I want to say a word about that. Uh, because I think we can misunderstand that and misinterpret that to mean that the church ought to be a place where conflict doesn't exist. Or the church ought to be a place where conflict is not discussed. Now, when, whenever Reagan or I are, are conducting premarital counseling, one thing we'll, we'll touch on a lot of times is um, the role of conflict. Because married people, yeah, let me get an amen, conflict is a reality, right? Even in the healthiest of marriages, right? Um, oh, we don't fight. <laughs> yeah, that's the scary. When we I meet with you other. and you're like, oh, we never fight, I'm like, one of y'all's about to explode. This, is, this is not good. So one, one question I'll ask is, you know, in your family growing up, put, put your family on a scale of 1 to 10. 1 being conflict was never discussed, never brought up, nobody ever dealt with conflict. Or a 10 is we were constantly in conflict and yelling and screaming and throwing plates, right? And, and, and people will place themselves on that scale. Now what's interesting is some people think that being closer to 1 is better. And it's not. It's worse. It's actually, in some ways, a lot worse. When you get far over on that one end of the spectrum where conflict is never discussed, conflict is never talked about, conflict is never acknowledged, guess what happens in those kinds of families? A lot of counseling. A lot of counseling. <laughs> Amen. And abuse, which is less funny, but is true. Families where there is abuse present frequently have almost zero conflict that gets acknowledged because guess what would happen if they had to acknowledge the conflict? Some people would be held to account. Now, I'm not saying that being close to 10 is any better, right? 
If you're yelling, screaming, throwing plates all the time, that's not healthy either. There is something offered in the middle, though, where we acknowledge our conflicts, but we do so in a way that seeks reconciliation, and that is the ultimate goal. Those of you who lived in a family where your parents modeled reconciliation for their kids, you know how healing and how healthy that was for you growing up. And those of you who didn't see that know how difficult it might be as an adult to figure that out with your partner, right? As the church, I think the same thing is true. And this is where I want to close. Like, um, like last week I talked about it. Today I'm going to mention it again. And, and, and Stan and I wrote a book. Um, it's doing very well on Amazon. It's like number 273,419. Um, Just had to bring up the book. Yep, again. I'll be retiring any minute now. We wrote this book not to get rich, um, not to get on a bestseller's what? list. It's a very niche book, but we think it's an important book um, because it's about this conversation on conflict and unity. Um, and if you are here for the first time, here's the short version. The United Methodist Church is like a family, and we're in the midst of some conflict. And it's mainly around who gets a seat at the table, specifically our sisters and brothers in the LGBTQ community. And so Stan and I wrote this book not as our great wisdom for the denomination, but to simply uplift the Lover's Lane story. Because when I talk about this conflict thing, I think Lover's Lane handles this better than most. I don't think we're a perfect church, but I think this is one of those areas that we, we get it right more often than not. Um, because we have far from swept things under the rug here. We have wrestled through the tension together, and yet we've been able to set a table that is wider and longer as a result, and we are now a church that's known for having a table that has more leaves added to it every single year, right? So Stan and I are going to be signing books today. If you want to pick one up, I encourage you to do so. We'll sign it. I'll write a really personalized message. Then you can have it for collector's edition. One day the museum will come calling. You can sell it for a big buck. Um, we are circulating these books to delegates throughout the world, um, to people who are influential in this upcoming vote we have in February, um, because we believe in Paul's words here. We believe that unity is important in the body of Christ, but that doesn't mean shoving things under the rug. It also doesn't mean yelling and screaming and throwing plates. It means sitting down at the table together, not set by us, but set by God. It means looking across the table and looking in the eyes of someone whom you may deeply disagree with on a number of issues, but you are united around the foot of the cross. It's about acknowledging that through Jesus, we have more that keeps us together than anything could ever separate us. And that there is something about this Jesus person that ushers us into a resurrected life that is different than the way that the world works. And that the divisions and the conflicts and the, and the sweeping under the rugs of conflicts that take place in the world don't have to take place here. That the way we treat each other in the church can look different. That's the story that we tell in this book. And so I encourage you to read it. I encourage you to pick one up today. And we will be out there able to sign and, and talk to you if you have any questions about it. More than that, I encourage you to continue to be the people of God here at Lover's Lane. Because it's not staying on my story, it's your story that we uplift, that we're sharing with the larger world. It's your story, the people of Lover's Lane, about how we are able to handle conflict hand in hand, seated at a table, looking each other eye to eye, rooted in the nature of Christ. I think I've said enough about that. Let's say a word of prayer and then let's continue in worship. Reagan, will you pray for us? God, we come together after reading this scripture and I hope that it resonated with us and that tomorrow morning um, that we would be different 
Of course, we want to be different right when we walk out these doors, but tomorrow morning, what does this message mean for my Monday? And maybe it's something as simple as you get an email and you could fire off a kind of rude remark and you think, no, I'm not going to do that. It could be how you conduct yourself on the tollway when it's clogged with cars. It's a way that you interact with your coworkers, how you walk in after a long day to your spouse or your partner, how you are with your kids. Or maybe it is picking up a phone call and apologizing to someone that you have been convicted and moved to say, I'm sorry. Maybe we take this Take this scripture, make, take this entire story of the Bible and listen to the Spirit, how it is moving us to be different. Lord, we are so desperate to make the, um, the church look different and be different and live into who you've called us to be. We struggle and we have really messed up at times, but I am hopeful that we can recapture what it means to be a Christian. Help us be so much more loving and forgiving and patient and kind and all of that because we simply cannot do it on our own. In your name we pray. Amen.